Watson at the seminary, we just want to say a thank you to the people at uh, Bethany. You may have thought that was a pretty short slideshow. Uh, that's because that's all the pictures they sent me. And so that's all I was able to work with. As you see from the slide that just went up, the children are dismissed now for their junior church time. And they could just head on out as they are at this point. My, past, my first pastoral position was in 1994. It was at a church in Edmonton called Northgate Baptist Church. I received a call there to become their youth pastor on one condition. I had to take out my earring. And so because I wanted the position at the church more than I wanted my earring, out came the earring, and I started my pastoral ministry. And the years at that church were formative for developing me as a pastor, particularly because of a blessing that God gave me at that church. And that was a pastoral colleague who was the associate pastor at that church by the name of Ralph Corner. Ralph Corner became my mentor. We got together on a weekly basis and discussed everything. We discussed my successes in ministry, my failures in ministry. He listened to some of my joys and my frustrations. He helped me by listening as I worked through some of my theology. Even when my theology started to move in some different directions than his, he simply encouraged me to continue on. He also advised me in my personal life, like when I asked him with all this agony over whether or not I should start dating this woman named Nancy. And he encouraged me to do so and... Well, we ended up getting married, and Ralph was actually the one that performed our pre-marriage counseling. Ralph was the one that married us as well. Besides entrusting me with the youth ministry, Ralph gave me a whole bunch of other opportunities in the church also. I had the opportunities to baptize. I had the opportunities to be a part of weddings. He even allowed me on Sunday mornings to preach. He was a formative person in my life. Six years later, I graduated with my Master's of Divinity, and Northgate Baptist Church offered me a full-time youth pastor position. Up until that point, I was working part-time because I was also in school, and in the summer months, they gave me full-time work. But now that I had graduated, they offered me a full-time position as their youth pastor. But one of my professors at seminary put my name in at another church that was looking for a pastor. A church named Greenfield Baptist who was looking for a senior or a lead pastor. And soon, around the same time that I had the extension of a call to be a full-time youth pastor at Northgate, the church that had mentored me, all of a sudden, this church, Greenfield, was extending a call to me to become their lead pastor. Now, what was I to do? Here, I was in a church for six years that had mentored me, had poured their life into me, gave me experience in financial support, whereas Greenfield, this new church, had invested nothing in me at that time. And yet, 
where I felt God calling me in my ministry was a ministry of preaching and teaching, and the position at Greenfield was a senior pastor preaching, teaching position. I wrestled with this for some time and finally went to my mentor and asked Ralph, what should I do? And as Ralph always did, he never told me what to do. Uh, But he simply guided me and helped me think some things through. And then about a week after that, he gave me a book, a book on preaching. And in the book, he signed it, Your Slingshot, Ralph Corner. And when I asked him, why... Why did you sign this? Your slingshot, Ralph Corner. He said to me, you've got to make the decision of what to do. But my whole work in your life up to this point has been to launch you into ministry for Jesus Christ. I ended up then becoming the lead pastor at Greenfield Baptist Church. See, what Ralph did was he mentored me to become a disciple of Jesus. It was never Ralph's intent to make me a disciple of Ralph Corner. It was never the intent of Ralph to make me a disciple of Northgate Baptist. Never was I approached and said, well, if you're going to do that, you need to pay us back for all the ways that we've helped you out. Ralph's whole desire for me, and I can say very thankfully to Northgate as well, they were a wonderful church, was to help me become a disciple of Jesus Christ. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about the ministry of John the Baptist and his role of pointing others to Jesus. And what we're going to find out this morning in today's text is that John has been doing his job very well. Highlighting Jesus, decreasing so that Jesus could increase. But he's been doing his role so well that it's actually having consequences on John's own ministry. So we're still in chapter 1, we're going to finish John chapter 1 today, but if you go to John chapter 1, and you look at verse 35, this is what we read. The following day, John, this is John the Baptist, was again standing with his two disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him, Jesus, and declared, look, there, the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them. What do you want, he asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Notice something in these first couple of verses in today's passage. The following day, John was again standing with his two disciples. Sometimes we read this over so fast, we don't recognize that. 
These two disciples that became Jesus' disciples were at this point John's disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at Jesus and declared, Look, there, the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. John has done his work so well that he's actually losing members of his own discipleship team. John has been preparing his disciples for someone else. Now, it's one thing to do that, but now when that someone else comes along, his disciples are packing up and moving on. That can be difficult. It can be bittersweet. Maybe you've coached before, and you've invested two, three years in a certain person on your team, and the person develops lots of skills to the point where now another team that is at a higher level than your team comes along and recruits this person off of your team to their team. It's a bittersweet experience. This is exactly what you are hoping and want to happen to the people that you are investing your life into. But at the same time, now they're no longer on your team. Or maybe you invest in an employee at your company only for them to outgrow their position and to be taken up by another company. Now, if the cause is right and if we can get past our own need for success, we realize that this is exactly what we're supposed to do with people when we care about them. But it's not always easy. Churches and pastors can often get caught up with making disciples for themselves. What we do when we teach and we disciple and we connect and we train and we develop people can easily slip into the fact that we're doing this for Bethany. We are attempting to make disciples of Bethany. And so we pour into our kids, we pour into our youth, we send our worship teams off to worship conferences, we go on missions trips, we do all of these things, investing in people, hoping that in some ways there'll be a payback for Bethany. It's easy to slip into that. Of course, there's nothing wrong with trying to build up a local church and help people become fully mature disciples of Jesus Christ that care about lost people and want to reach the lost, but it's easy to mix up the motives from the focus on doing this for Jesus and then simply for ourselves. And when the motives get mixed up, every time someone moves, every time someone graduates or ends up going somewhere else, we kind of feel betrayed. We've poured so much into this person. We've done so much for them. And now they leave and they go elsewhere. They were supposed to be our disciples. But John reminds us that we're always building disciples for Jesus. We have no guarantee how long people will be here. 
how long people's lives will be in one area. We have no idea how life circumstances may change things. But while people are with us, we are here helping them become disciples of Jesus Christ. So that whether they're here or whether they end up going somewhere else, wherever they are, they flourish as disciples of Jesus Christ. John is a good one to remind us of that. To teach us that we're called to make disciples of Jesus. And therefore, all mentoring that we should do should be held onto loosely. This can be particularly difficult when it's our own kids. Even as parents, all mentoring that we do in our own children should be held loosely. So that they're not becoming disciples of you, but that they're becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciples who may look, act, behave, go places very different than you. But that's because they belong to Jesus. Ultimately, all of us belong to Jesus. And so when Jesus comes along, our role, like John the Baptist, is to point people and say, There, Jesus, he is the Lamb of God. And to allow people to run after Jesus. That's what Ralph did for me. Ralph poured into me so that I would run after Jesus. John the Baptist's ministry was one of making disciples of Jesus, not disciples of John, so that John's disciples left him to follow Jesus. Another note that we should see in today's passage is the fact that John's disciples also became followers of Jesus. When John's two disciples heard this, we read, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around, and when Jesus did, as we see here, Jesus saw them following him. When Jesus asked them, or when they asked Jesus where he was about to stay, Jesus said, come and see. Which, by implication, means you're going to have to follow me. You're going to have to come and see. In Baptist circles, we have a history of placing an unhealthy emphasis on making a decision for Jesus. Of course, every journey has to start somewhere. And particularly for some people who have no church background, for some people who have never heard of Jesus Christ before, and when they are first introduced to Jesus Christ, there can be a real moment of decision that they make. A turning in their life from darkness to light. But everyone who has grown up in a Christian environment can attest to how subjective this kind of making a decision for Jesus can be. We at times put an unhealthy emphasis on the decision. 
That's why some of us who have grown up in that kind of a circle, and I can attest to it myself in my growing up years in the church, have accepted Jesus into our heart probably about 500 times. Once at the youth rally, twice at summer camp, and then once again at church because I wasn't sure if the last one really counted. And then we had that special speaker who really motivated my heart and made me wonder if the last time wasn't sincere enough, and so I did it again. And then there was that time when I was three years old, but I wasn't psychologically developed enough to know the difference between Jesus and Santa Claus, so I realized later that I didn't know what I was doing. And then there was that decision for Jesus that I made when I was subjected to Christian horror movies, and I didn't want to eternally boil in fire in hell forever. And then I didn't want to be left behind to break out into boils while scorpions stung me and flies bit the skin off my body. So I made another decision for Jesus at that time, and on and on and on it went. I think many of you probably know what I'm talking about. The Bible, however, is interesting, places very little emphasis on making a decision for Jesus. In fact, even when people do this, like the rich young ruler, or when the crowd of 5,000 that were fed by Jesus come rushing after, making a decision, wanting to make him king, it says, Jesus often dissuades them by saying things like, well, unless you are willing to sell everything you have and follow me. When the crowds came to Jesus, willing to make a decision for him as king, he says, well, unless you're willing to eat my body and drink my blood. In other words, decisions mean very little if decisions are not a decision to follow Jesus. Decisions alone are often fleeting, as well as our decisions can be selfish. We make a decision for Jesus so that he will serve us. We make a decision for Jesus because we want to escape hell or the apocalypse. We make a decision for Jesus so we can be forgiven of our sins. We make a decision for Jesus because he'll give us lots of money. We make a decision for Jesus because if he'll just get us out of this mess, then I promise that I will then dedicate myself to you. We make a decision for Jesus so that he will help us in our marriage. We make a decision for Jesus so that he'll heal us of our sickness. A decision for Jesus, therefore, can become nothing more than a decision to have a Walmart card for all the perks that it gives you with no intent of ever becoming a follower of Walmart. Just a decision. Because there's certain perks to the decision. This is something I also learned during my time at Northgate, those six formative years of my ministry. See, I started off my ministry by doing several altar calls after I would give messages to the youth and to the college students and sometimes even to the adults, I often would follow them up with altar calls to have people make a decision for Jesus. That's the environment I grew up in. The problem was I had the disadvantage of being a pastor and not a traveling evangelist. 
I say disadvantage because as a pastor, you end up having to stay around and see what happens afterwards. The evangelist gets to tally up his statistics and then move on to the next city. Well, the fact that I stayed around, I got to witness a number of my youth make decisions for Jesus Christ only to find very low interest in wanting to follow him afterwards. In fact, not without trying. Many times there was much effort put in to try to get them to now become disciples. And a lot of times, a week or two after, there was just no interest. It seemed silly to me, theologically, to think that all of these people had become Christians and now they had, within a couple of weeks, all lost their salvation. So I thought there's got to be something else going on. I also remember one time in Edmonton that we took our youth group to Missions Fest. And there was a speaker who, at the end of his message, challenged all the young people there that, and said, anybody that wants to dedicate their lives to full-time overseas missionary service, come to the front. I had a youth group of about 20 that attended that particular one. Every single kid in my youth group went forward and dedicated their life to full-time overseas missionary service. And yet, not a single one of them today is a full-time missionary. In fact, not a single one of them ever even went that direction at all. All of this began to make me question this making a decision. Some of the youth that made that decision went on to completely forget that they ever made that decision. Some of the other youth with more sensitive consciences, conscience um, now... I don't know if they still do now, but I remember back then, a number of them then went on to live with the guilt of feeling like they made a vow that they now broke. And I just thought, this, is, this can't be the way we should be doing things. All this flightiness, all this emotionalism, all the broken promises are causing more people to lose interest in the church and in Jesus. For me, I never lost my faith over it, but I certainly lost a lot of my faith in the Christian culture, traditions, and sacred cows that I grew up in. And the more I examined Scripture, the more I spent time in the Bible, the more I wondered if this was even the approach that Jesus took. Again, we don't see Jesus making a lot of effort trying to get people to make a decision for him. What we find Jesus doing continually is calling followers, disciples, calling people to be a follower of Jesus. A church of 20 followers of Jesus, a church of 20 disciples makes a bigger impact on a community than 500 decisions. Jesus is looking for people who are saying, my life is now oriented towards you. I'm a follower of you. 
They don't come to church to be served. They come to church to serve. They recognize that to be a follower of Jesus means a life of caring and living for other people, not a life of being catered to. Teresa of Avila lived in the 1500s once said, when one reaches the highest degree of human maturity, one has only one question left. How can I be helpful? What a great statement. How can I be helpful? What would that say about the state of even the church if people walked into the church and said, I I just want to be helpful? Rather than, how can this church serve me? What can this church do for me? How do the programs help me? How does it do this, this, this? Maturity, discipleship, an indication of a follower of Jesus is, here I am, how can I be, how can I be helpful? I'm a follower of Jesus. That means my life is oriented towards God. It's oriented towards others. I just want to help. That's exactly what we see John's disciples, who are now Jesus' disciples, do. As soon as they become Jesus' disciples, the very first action on theirs is not, okay, we'll be followers of Jesus, now what can you do for us, Jesus? John said you'd, you'd do stuff for us. No, the very first thing we see these disciples do when they run to Jesus is run and tell other people about Jesus. Their first behavior, their first action is to follow Jesus by now serving him and bringing others to Jesus. We found Jesus. Now let us spend our life pointing others to this Jesus. Look what happens in verse 40 as we continue on. These two come to Jesus. And then we read Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these two men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come, follow me. Philip was from Bethesda, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Notice Jesus said, come follow me. Not just make a decision about me, come follow me. And what did Philip do? How did Philip follow Jesus? Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. The indication of both of these people becoming followers of Jesus is they run out and they start doing what John the Baptist was doing, telling others about Jesus and saying, come join, come follow. It became instantly others-focused, not self-focused. Andrew became Jesus' disciple And then encourages Simon Peter to become Jesus' disciple. Philip becomes Jesus' disciple and then encourages Nathaniel to become Jesus' follower. That's what Jesus' followers do. They encourage others 
to follow Jesus. They bring others to him so they can join God's family because God's story is so much more than about saving individuals. God's story is about creating a whole new community. And so what Jesus' followers do is they go and they find other people to join the family. Thus, the intent of John's gospel is to prove that in Jesus, the destiny of Israel is being fulfilled. God is creating a new people. Jesus is making God's story of Israel as the hope of the whole world a reality. As Jesus becomes Israel and fulfills Israel's mission, Jesus now is the one through whom he calls all people to join to become the Israel that God has called from the beginning. We are, as I said today, finishing up chapter 1, and you may have noticed in the sermons through chapter 1 how many references and allusions and pictures go back to the Old Testament. And this is not accidental. John is making the case that everything has been leading to this point. And so linked to Genesis 1, as we've seen in chapter 1, Jesus was with God in the beginning as creator of all things, and Jesus is God through whom everything continues to exist. John's also shown us, linked to chapter 2 of Genesis, that Jesus is the true human one. Then, linked with Exodus 29 and 1 Chronicles 17, Jesus becomes the true tabernacle in John 1.14. Jesus becomes the true temple in whom God dwells among us. Linked with Isaiah 40, John the Baptist was the voice shouting in the wilderness, preparing the way of Jesus to inaugurate the new age. Linked with the Levitical sacrifices and with the substitutionary lamb for Isaac and also with the Exodus Passover lamb, Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then linked with Isaiah 11 and 42, the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus as the new messianic King David. And then linked with Ezekiel 36, Jesus now baptizes his followers with that Holy Spirit. And so we shouldn't expect John to stop now. Just in chapter 1 alone, we have at least... Ten different allusions or references to the Old Testament story. And so before chapter 1 comes to a close, John makes two more connections with Israel's story in Jesus' calling of Simon and Nathaniel. To link this calling of God's people who become followers of Jesus to becoming the people of God is Israel. And so what we see is God with this knack of renaming people. He renames people as an indication of 
a new orientation to your life. This still happens in some cultures. In some cultures, when people become Christians, they take on new names. This happened in the early church because a lot of the names that people had, especially in the Greek culture, were names after pagan gods. And so when they became Christians, they took on a Christian name. And so what we read is when Jesus meets Simon, he changes his name to Peter, which means rock. The full implications of this come later when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus at that point reminds Peter that your name means rock. And then he says, upon this rock I will build my church. How does this come about? Later in Acts The Holy Spirit comes. This is after Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. Then the Holy Spirit comes. There's people there from all different nations. They start hearing the gospel story in their own language, in their own tongue. And then when they're confused and wondering what is going on, it says that Peter preached. And when people heard Peter's explanation and heard Peter's message, about 3,000 people became followers of Jesus and joined the church that day. Peter becomes the foundation based off of his faith and the message he proclaims. It's that 3,000 people that become the beginning of the church. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 17. There we find a man by the name of Abram, the founding father of Israel. And there we find God changing his name and promising that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. Genesis 17, God said to Abram, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham. For you will be the father of many nations, and I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations. What's happening now is the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled in Peter. Just as it was upon Abraham's faith that God founded Israel, so it was on Peter's faith that God is going to restore Israel into her fullest sense. Jesus is going to build his church from the people of all nations to be a blessing of all nations, just as he promised Abraham would happen, and is now fulfilled in Peter. This is God's Israel, the spiritual seed of Abraham. Peter, therefore, becomes the new Abraham, the foundation of God's people. Now look what happens to Nathaniel. The same thing. We go to verse 47. As they approached... Jesus said, now, here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me, Nathanael asked. 
Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked, do you believe this because I told you I've seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you will see all heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. This story, especially the last line there, takes us back to another Old Testament father. The Jewish readers of this would have got it right away. It takes us back to another Old Testament story of another one of Israel's founding fathers who God also changed the name of, and that is the man Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel. Jacob was the one who stole his brother Esau's birthright by deceiving his father. And now when Esau discovers this, in a complete contrast to how Jesus describes Nathanael as a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity, Esau describes Jacob, who has his name later changed to Israel, Esau describes his brother Jacob this way, no wonder his name is Jacob, for now he has cheated me twice. Then fearing Esau is going to kill him. Jacob runs. And when we reach Bethel, and Jacob comes and he lays his head down on a rock, listen to what happens in the story. At sundown, Jacob arrived at a good place set to set up camp and stop there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamt of a stairway that reached up from the earth to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down that stairway. This is the same story Jesus is referring to, now connected with Nathanael. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Jesus is now saying, Nathaniel, you are fulfilling the role of Jacob, Israel. You are a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity, unlike the deceitfulness of your father Jacob. And just as your father Jacob was able to catch a vision of a ladder between heaven and earth with the Lord standing on top of it, promising to bless all the nations of the world, now, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man who is the stairway between heaven and earth. The one that your father Jacob saw standing at the top of the stairway That same one is now here in me, Jesus. And I didn't remain at the top of the stairway. I came down to meet you in your world. I tabernacled among you. And in doing so, I became the stairway. I am the one who bridges 
the gap between God and humanity. What Jacob saw in shadow form, you're now seeing in reality. I, Jesus, the Son of Man, am the Lord. I am the latter. I am the one who's come down to rescue my people. I am the bridge, the door from which all people from all nations will enter my new world. And notice how the promises in the Old Testament to Abraham and to Jacob were always promises that through you the whole world will be blessed, north, south, east, west of all nations. And now as we see this being fulfilled in Jesus with Peter and now with Nathaniel, they are, Jesus is saying the same thing. Now through Peter, it's going to go out to the whole world. You're going to hear it in tongues. Peter's going to explain. It goes out into all the world. Nathaniel, you are going to be one of my disciples and this is the message going to go to the world. And so Peter is the new Abraham. Nathaniel becomes the new Jacob, Israel. And what does Jesus do after this? He chooses 12 disciples. Why? Fulfillment of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is rewriting Israel's story. Israel's story in the Old Testament which led to Jesus... Israel in the Old Testament, which continually failed because they could not achieve or do the story, Jesus comes and completes it, and now as he completes it, he reestablishes Israel by calling his disciples and now calling people and sending them out and calling people from all nations, from all over the world, and saying, you, come, follow Jesus. And when you do, you join God's true Israel. That is why John the Baptist pointed everyone to Jesus. This is why John the Baptist wanted his disciples to leave him and to become followers of Jesus. John knew that he was only there for preparation. John did not have saving power. John merely represents the Old Testament. Salvation isn't found in John. Salvation isn't found in being born an Israeli. Salvation isn't found in being born a Jew. Salvation isn't found in following the Old Testament law or following the Old Testament sacrifices. All of the things that John represents. All of those things were merely shadows, illustrations to point to a true reality. That's why John said, you got to take your eyes off of me to see who the true Israel is. The true sacrificial lamb is. And you need to join the true people of God. Not the shadow people. Salvation is found in Christ alone. He is the Israel that saves and as followers of him, we join his one true family, the people of God, the Israel that God called from Abraham on. This is what we, Paul says in Galatians. Through Jesus Christ, God has blessed the Gentiles 
with the same blessing he promised Abraham. Notice that some people talk about two blessings, one blessing to the Gentiles, one blessing to the Jews. No, God blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. And then Paul says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, hear this. You are the true children of Abraham. There's not two people. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. When you come to Christ, now that you belong to him, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promises to Abraham belong to you. That's what Paul says. Everything that was promised to Abraham about people, about land, and about all of that belonged to us. Belong to the true Israel, not the shadow Israel. The true Israel, that is the followers of the Messiah. From the times of the Old Testament through to the times of the New Testament have come in Jesus Christ. And therefore, as we end this chapter, we see three final themes in this last section. And that is, we are all called to become followers of Jesus. Not to just make a decision for him. Yes, I think he's this, or yes, I think he's that, or yes, he'll help me this way. We are all called to be followers of Jesus. And when we become followers of Jesus, the second thing that we see is we join God's one true family. That is God's one Israel, his people. They are a people from every nation in the world, north, south, east, and west. Jesus came, and as John shows in his gospel, to show that he was fulfilling Israel's role and rewriting his story. We're called to become followers of Jesus, and when we do, we join Jesus' family. And third, what we saw this morning is that when we become followers of Jesus and we join Jesus' family, our mission is to tell others about him. Go and find the Nathaniels, go and find the Simons, go and find all of those people from all the nations all over the world and welcome them in and say, God's got a big family and he wants to adopt you to be part of it as well, to join in as one of Jesus' followers. Become a follower of Jesus and join his family and go and call others to follow Jesus as well. Let's pray. Lord, our commitment to you as believers is to live as your family children, to recognize to whom we belong, 
and to live our lives in full allegiance to you. Lord, we also pray for those that are not yet followers of you. We pray, God, that we who are followers of you will follow you in such a way that it will attract other people to know that following you is to find the stairway between heaven and earth. Not a stairway that causes us to escape earth to run to heaven, but it's a stairway that connects heaven and earth together again. Heaven and earth that became separated because of sin. Jesus, you've come and you've connected heaven and earth together again so that we could know you and be in relationship with you. Lord, we pray that as a church we will model what it means to be followers of Jesus. That we always will put Jesus first, even before Bethany first. That we will, as people are coming into our midst, that we will allow people to grow and develop as followers, and when people are sent out from our midst, that wherever they go, they will go as followers of you that have matured and grown because of their time here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.